Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And I'm Julie. And welcome back to our series on bioterrorism. I believe we're on episode a gazillion in this series. I've lost count. It's so many. Once Can't stop, won't stop. Today, we are still in sort of the modern-ish era of bioterrorism. A lot of what we talk about are times where some people are who are listening to this podcast are alive. There are probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are not alive during some of these events that we are discussing. But you're right around the corner. So I had a little bit of a teaser last episode where we were going to talk about Ken Alabac and we're going to talk about Dark Harvest today. So one of these is in Russia and the other one brings us back to the UK. Both of them are little teasers that we've had in previous episodes. One thing that I was super surprised about the more I dive into this is how interconnected all of this is. We learned about how the Japanese are sort of this first wave of bioterrorism and a lot of their scientists, when things got dismantled after World War II, went out to America, to Russia for that second wave of bioterrorism. The Americans gave amnesty to a lot of these Japanese bioweapon specialists for their reports on the things that they did. We learned that in Russia, Compound 19 was actually based off of a 731 building plan. And from there, that second wave, we then had the third wave when the Soviet Union broke down. A lot of those Russian scientists who had been researching bioterrorism for 40 plus years went to other emerging countries in the bioterrorist front, many of them in the Middle East. Uh, I'm guessing the U.S. tried to scoop up as many as they could. Well, I'm sure they did, or at least they tried. But we're going to talk about one specific Russian scientist who was very influential in the bioweapon department of Russia during the Cold War. His name is Ken Alibek. That is his westernized name. He is perhaps the most famous of whistleblowers regarding bioterrorism of our modern day. That might be highly specific, but he's also probably a pretty well-known whistleblower. Ken Alabak fled his crumbling regime of the Soviet Union in 1992 for America to come see me born. Oh, he was, he was looking he at was, the window in like, the living room. like, that girl's going to become a microbiologist. I got to be there. Right, Ma? Gross. <laughs> Ken Alibak fled his crumbling regime of the Soviet Union in 1992 for America. He brought with him his wife, three children, and a copious amount of information on the Soviet Union bioterrorist unit. Although unit may not convey the size of this department. It consisted of 30,000 scientists in various buildings across Russia, hundreds of large concrete and steel buildings, often surrounded by eight-foot concrete walls, topped with electric wires, and on top of that was guarded 24-7, and for good reason. Many of them were also equipped with motion sensors and other security elements. They were locked down tight. In the first building alone was rows upon rows of freezers housing the most feared bioweapon agents. We're talking Ebola, 
Lisa, smallpox, monkeypox, tick-borne, encephalitis, influenza, Marburg, HIV, hepatitis, A, B, C, and E, Japanese encephalitis, just to name a few. A lot of those are no bueno. I can't even imagine like standing in a building that just has a quadrillion microbes of death. So like any second, like you could be exposed to any number of these. Yeah. That's got to be terrifying. I don't know. There's people that work in BSL-4 labs, and they have the whole pressurized suit. Yeah, I don't think I could work in a BSL-4. never be able to do that. Uh Uh-uh, uh-uh. The unit was called BioPreparet. In the words of Ken Alabak, the Americans had hidden behind a similar veil of secrecy when they launched the Manhattan Projects to develop the first atomic bomb. The BioPreparet, we believed, was our Manhattan Project. And they were well-funded. Alabak says in 1990, the Soviet bioterrorism research budget was close to a billion dollars. A billion? A billion. That's a lot of money that they're pouring in. Their testing island, which we'll get back to the European test or the UK's testing island later, but their testing site was called Rebirth Island, which does not sound like an island for killing a bunch of things, but so it goes. Rebirth Island, the place of destruction. Might as well just call it Genesis Island. Yeah. Their testing subject were mostly monkeys, monkeys they had to keep healthy in order to test their weapons. So oftentimes the monkeys were fed better than the actual scientists and definitely better than the civilians. Ken Alabak made his first name for himself at the BioPreparet by developing a vaccine-resistant strain of tularemia and weaponized it. Ken Alabak was successful at this, among many other things. And while Ken Alabak found a new home in America, other scientists left to start the third generation of bioterrorism research after the Soviet Union fell. They said goodbye to the Soviet Russia and fled to countries ramping up this kind of research, which includes many countries we have a number of concerns with on most days, like Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea. Just to name a few. Just to name a few. Ken Alabek wrote a book called Biohazard in 1999, highly suggests super interesting read, and was a major source for this segment as we talk about bioterrorism. He summed up Russia's bioterrorism progression as follows. When the Soviet biological warfare program began in the 1920s, the scientists attached crop sprayers to low-flying planes and hoped that a contrary wind wouldn't blow the germs the wrong way after World War II bombers armed with explosives were added to the arsenal. The Cold War fueled the development of ever more destructive of armaments. And by the 1970s, we had managed to harness single warhead intercontinental ballistic missiles for use in the delivery of biological agents. I just like how we just got out of World War II and countries are building even more destructive weapons after experiencing such devastation. Arguably, the Soviet Union, they had the biggest losses of life compared to any other country during that war. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, when you lose a lot, sometimes you want to get back at people. Not everyone has empathetic ears. That is true. So from crop sprayers to being able to arm missiles with biological agents, this was all is what happened during Ken Alabeck's time, or I guess before Ken Alabeck's time as well. 
in the Russian bioweapon research. Ken Alabek was a head of this Russian program. He defected to the U.S. and revealed the massive amounts of ongoing research in Russia on anthrax, smallpox, tularemia, botulinum toxin, and the plague. So far in the book, I will admit I haven't read the whole thing because it is so interesting. I was really going to plan to skim it, but it was just impossible. I had to sit down and really read it. He has worked quite considerably with tularemia, anthrax, and smallpox. I don't think I've read too much about plague or botulinum toxin, but there might be chapters coming up about that. Also, kind of harking to the previous episode, it's a little interesting that he was studying both bacteria and viruses. A lot of scientists would focus on one organism or several organisms to study. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. But as a head of some of these facilities, he was maybe not the one directly working with them, but sort of overseeing the scientists that had that specialty. That is true. Yeah. So he wanted to be a doctor in the military. His start in bioweapons was during his graduate studies when he came to the conclusion that the Soviet had tried to spray tularemia throughout the German forces during World War II. But unfortunately to the Soviets, they found their own forces suffered heavily from their own bioweapon attack, perhaps due to some unfavorable winds blowing it back or perhaps infected animals running through both forces. Regardless, when Alabak brought this up to his professor, his professor sternly advised Alabak to never speak of this again. And that was his start to rising through the ranks to becoming the director of the new anthrax facility. Just harks back to Unit 731 again because they tried to release, I think it was dysentery and cholera and ended up affecting their own soldiers as well. Yeah, I mean, the bacteria, or I mean, any bioweapon agent, not targeted. Nope. A human is a human, a host is a host. That's enough. And winds will carry them a long distance. He and his team devised an elaborate method for growing large quantities of Bacillus anthracis. All the strains were held in one location. A tiny amount of the mother stock would be transferred into a specific media formula based on the specific strain, which I thought was interesting that every strain, even multiple strains of anthrax, would have its own formula of media that was its best growing conditions. I kind of wonder, like, I guess it depends on what they're doing. If they're trying to, like, make it express, like, specific genes, maybe you need a specific media formulation to coax it to do that. I mean, that's true. Different environments will produce different effects. Yeah. So after they take a small bit of the microbe and put it into its own little hotel, they put it in an incubator. So now the bacteria has plenty of food and the perfect temperature. Bacillus anthracis would be a happy little microbe and start reproducing in these settings. After 48 hours, billions of happy Bacillus anthracis would be swarming in the growth media. But this is not enough. By adding a bit of oxygen and frothing up the media, the Bacillus becomes even more happy and grows even more efficiently. In the end, the culture wouldn't look on like your morning cup of coffee with just a splash of cream. <laughs> it was really dark at the end. Oh, it's very dark. Mm. In more than one way. 
Once they outgrow the benchtop vials, the bacteria are transferred to a giant-like cauldron called a fermenter. Once at maximum concentration, it's time to take that giant amount of media and dwindle it down to something more usable. But just as concentrated. So what do they do? Uh, did they lyophilize it? Uh, nope. Did they centrifuge it? Yes. They spin it down at ultra-fast speeds in a machine called a centrifuge. They add some additional additives that help to stabilize the newly concentrated bacteria and then transport it off to weapon testing. Did they use homemade nozzles to spray it off their building? In the beginning, they were using like crop sprayers, but during Ken Alibek's time, they were using real bombs, real missiles to start putting it all together. So they figured out how to weaponize it in bombs. I know Unit 731 couldn't figure that one out. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like it. They never, I guess he never really talked about it at the testing site, but the way he talked about it, they were they were doing it. And it's, I mean, it's just sort of wild, like reading this book from his account, his firsthand account, having been there and having rising up the ranks of the biopreparant and how often he had a sort of switch into different ways and he would get in trouble, but because he was so high up and because he knew so much, they couldn't fire him, which I also thought was interesting. So he got reprimanded a couple times, but like not really reprimanded. One time he just had to like, they just gave him a piece of paper and told him to write down all the things you did wrong and sign it and then sent him back to his facility (laughs) like a child. I was like, wow. But it was like so knowledgeable. They're like, we can't. We can't. They we couldn't. can't lose him. Yeah. Now you think of what you did. Yeah, it was like one of those. So I don't know. It's a really interesting story, and he talks about how they created a smallpox strain, which was able to show symptoms within one to five days. With the typical smallpox, usually show symptoms and start feeling it seven to ten days. So they were doing some intense research over there that was making bioterrorist agents quite capable of mass destruction. Some shady stuff going on over there. Yeah. They also developed an anthrax strain that became three times as virulent as the other strains that they had. So they could infect a place like New York City with a third of as much effort as before. You know, I'm kind of ignorant in these things because what's the time period at this point? 60s, 70s? So this ranges from the 60s up through the 80s. Yeah, I mean, we we have sequencing. We can readily figure out what genes we want to add to a microbe. They may be, you know, know of DNA at this point. They may know what the DNA is, but it's so much harder back then. I'm really curious of how they pulled it off back then. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a lot of adaptive evolution. They wouldn't be doing much with genetics or sequencing at this point, I, I wouldn't think. I, I, he even talked about with their smallpox, which is another interesting thing with their smallpox facilities. They would have thousands of chickens Mm-hmm. or chicken embryos come in every week while the Russian people were starving 
And so it's like just a really interesting thing to think about, like the government is sending so much resources and so much food, quite frankly, when you think of all these chicken embryos to a research facility to conduct experiments that would result in mass destruction. Yeah, they're putting so much, yeah, a billion Without dollars. Without protecting their own people. Yeah, a billion dollars. And how many miles could that have fed at that period of time? Like yeah. a year? Yeah. And, all, and the, yeah, all the monkeys getting, like, the fresh food, fruit and everything. And you said adaptive evolution. That's just adding stressors to the microbe for it to be able to overcome it, right? Yeah, yeah. You're just trying to squeeze the microbe to do a particular function. And then over time, you're kind of selecting the microbes with the right mutations to continue propagating. Mm. So that's actually all I have on Ken Alabac. Oh, because you haven't finished his story yet. Well, I've actually been so interested in the book that I can't stop and write things down. Maybe we'll have to have you do a book report. Oh, I might have to. But let's talk about Dark Harvest. This one, I think, is very interesting in sort of a positive way. It's like a positive bioterrorist attack. What? Positive bioterrorism attack. Yeah, it was like their hearts were in the right place. Well, I got to hear this now. Unlike yeah. so many of the others that we have talked about. And also, I've been trying to think of like Dark Harvest. It reminds me of something, but I haven't pinpointed it. Like it's edgy band name, Dark Harvest. Yeah, or something from like a video game or or playlist on Spotify. Oh, yeah, the Dark Harvest playlist. Yeah, it definitely sounds like something like that. Yeah. All right, so let's end this episode talking about a positive bioterrorist attack, question mark, with people with their hearts in the right place, which we haven't seen before. Wouldn't necessarily call these people villains. Many of the other people we've talked about on this podcast, I probably would. Villains of humanity. These people, these people, I don't think so. So this brings us back to, um, I don't know, three episodes ago where I told you one of our anthrax stories, how to sequel. This is the sequel. Do you guys remember in the World War II episode, I told the story of Anthrax Island? Yeah, that was off the UK, right? Like Scotland? Yeah. Ireland? Uh Uh-huh. It's off Scotland. Well, let's look a little bit into how this story ends. Oh, you tell. So my sources for this story is basically everything I've talked about previously, as well as the BBC Scotland video called Dark Dark Harvest's Mission. So if you didn't listen to our World War II episode, I would. They are very eye-opening, very grotesque, and I would probably say not very suitable for younglings, but a very interesting side story to a piece of history we often do not get to peer into. But if you haven't, or if you need a refresher, because it was three plus weeks ago, or maybe you're binging this, and it was three hours ago, regardless, we are over in Scotland and the island of Grenard. The Ministry of Defense in Britain were tasked at finding a way to weaponize the deadly power of anthrax and chose Grenard Island as their testing site. The government tried to cover it up, blaming a Greek ship and paying off farmers who took any notice or had their own animals come down with the disease. 
I feel like that's a little insensitive culturally to blame it on a completely different country ship coming in. Yeah, it definitely is. But a group would be formed to bring this scandal to the forefront of the media and demand the government take responsibilities for their bioterrorism research that ended up poisoning local lands and the Scottish island for decades. The group and the act would be known as Dark Harvest. In October 1981, two packages of soils suspected of containing anthrax were placed at the outside of the research site of Porton Down, which was the agency who used the site for bioterrorist testing. A few days later, another package was dropped off in, off in Blackpool. Just as a side note, this was 30 years, almost to the day of the 2001 American Anthracic Test, which also happened in October, but in 2001 instead of 1981. Thought that was interesting, but you know I'll put that together because who's researching both of these anthrax stories at the same time? Just me, I think. Yeah, that's probably just a me thing. You're like, wait a second. Yeah. So, each of these packages contained a dramatic letter signifying their protest and campaign to bring this cover-up to light, calling Bacillus anthracis seeds of death, and that nearly 300 pounds of soil was taken from the site. The members of Dark Harvest had simple demands and wanted the British government to admit their wrongs and decontaminate the island. See? Heart's in the right place. Yeah. Okay. They're just being a little dramatic about it. I'm, I'm guessing something goes wrong of how they packaged it. No, there's actually, like, no actual um, victims in this. Really? Yeah. Hmm. The act of protest was dramatic, it did gain immense media attention, and caused a bit of hysteria among the public, because who wouldn't be a little bit uh, freaked out when they find out a box of soil containing anthrax that the government had poisoned was right around their doorstep. That's kind of scary. Yeah, I wouldn't blame them for reacting that way. Mm -hmm. Plus you got the media, spreads hysteria even more. But as we said, Bacillus anthracis is commonly found in soil, and dumping a bucket full of soil with heightened amounts of Bacillus anthracis was hardly an act of bioterrorism, in my opinion. It was more of a very stern wording of, hey, can you please pick this up? After all, you did it. In this form, there is a pretty low chance of anyone would have gotten hurt unless the spores came in contact with a cut, which we learned is cutaneous anthrax. And Dark Harvest also contained this letter that said seeds of death are in this soil, indicating to everyone, hey, there's probably anthrax in here. You put it there. Probably don't try to stir this up and inhale it. Yeah, don't open it. Yeah. So, wasn't an act of bioterrorism? Wasn't an act of whistleblowing? Was it a somewhat aggressive environmentalist act? A little of the above. A little of all the above. I'll let you decide that. But in the end, the government did come to the Grenard Island and treated the island with seawater and formaldehyde, which I was thinking, is that really any better? Because it also seems kind of toxic, but... Yeah, I feel like formaldehyde is maybe not the best option. Formaldehyde is like what they put in the frogs, right? When you dissect them and yeah, their bodies you... when they put them in the ground. Yeah, to preserve them. But yeah, I'm really not sure on the environmental impact of seeding an entire island with formaldehyde to... Probably not good. Bacillus anthracis spores. Regardless, the government did deem the island safe in 1987, and no arrests were ever made. I mean, I hope so, because that is a form of protest, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I mean, no one actually got hurt, and the government did, like, make a pretty big oopsie that they were just like, hey, why don't you pick this up? Clean up your own damn mess. Mm-hmm. And that concludes our final episode, Driving Through the Histories of Bioterrorism. We hope you've been captivated and maybe learned a thing or two about the bioterrorism stories of the second half of the 20th century. This also officially wraps up this season of the Micro Moment. We started in medieval times learning about catapulting bodies to spread the plague caused by Yersinia pestis. We learned about leprosy-tainted wine and the Hittite plague. This was time far before humans had any understanding of the microbial world. We moved into the 17th and 18th century where humans gleaned their first glimpse into the marvelously fascinating unseen world teeming with tiny yet mighty microorganisms that had been and still do shape our world. We saw the acceptance of germ theory and how one of the most feared bioterrorist agents, Bacillus anthracis, has actually led to the medical world we know and maybe not love, but at least can appreciate today. We discussed the Napoleonic bioterrorist act of flooding an island to cause disease to spread amongst the British. We dove into animal bioterrorism in World War I and World War II with Glander's disease of horses, donkeys, and mules. Glander's is caused by a Category B bioterrorism agent, Brickloderia malae. We talked about the heinous acts of Unit 731 during World War II, and America's deep dive into its own research in bioterrorism, and we wrapped up discussing some modern-day acts committed by the sick and disturbed minds of today, or I guess of yesterday. In each section, we told a story of how certain microbes were manipulated by humanity to commit the most atrocious acts of deliberate and often not even targeted mass murder. We've discussed on a number of Category A biological agents like... Bacillus anthracis, Clostridium botulinum, Yersinia pestis, variola major or smallpox, tularemia, and several viral hemorrhagic fevers. So before we say goodbye, we have a special request for you. If you've enjoyed our journey through the micro moment of bioterrorism through the ages, please take a moment to rate and subscribe to our podcast. Your support keeps us motivated to bring you these captivating stories that I bet you no one else in the world is going to bring you. Now we do our best to be unique and informative. Now, here's some news for our loyal Microbial Nation. We'll be taking a hiatus for the remainder of the year to recharge, explore new stories, and prepare for what's to come. While we won't be airing new episodes in the near future, we have exciting plans for 2024. Maybe. So stay tuned for our return. And in the meantime, share our podcast with your friends and fellow microbe enthusiasts. Your support means the world to us. And we can't wait to continue this incredible journey with you. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey through time and the microbial world. Remember, it's the micro moment that continues to shape our world. So until next time, feed your microbes, feed your guts, make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.